So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. And um, let's continue our study of this great gospel. I remember reading about when Bobby Bowden was playing college baseball. He finally hit his first home run, and he hustled around the bases and came into home plate, and everyone was giving him a high five until the pitcher was uh, given the ball and tossed the ball to first base, and the umpire called him out. Turns out he had missed first base. You hit a home run and you hustle around the bases, but he forgot to touch first base. And when Bowden was asked about that after the fact, he said, you know what I learned? He says, I learned if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what else you do. Of course, he was thinking about baseball, but I've thought about that with regard to life. I've thought about that through the years with regard to life. First base. What's first base? What's first base to you? What should be first base to you and to all of us according to the Scriptures? Henry Nouwen wrote these words. He said, I often think a life is like a day. It goes by so fast. If I am so careless with my days, how can I be careful with my life? I know that somehow I have not fully come to believe that urgent things can wait while I attend to what is truly important. It finally boils down to a question of deep and strong conviction. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, he was very clear on what was first base for him, what was priority for Jesus. And we're allowed to see Jesus' priorities because he gives it right here in the verses that we'll look at. And... uh, We're allowed to see the many good things that try to also distract him from what's first base. Um, So we looked at the first 13 verses last time, and I'll just uh, give another shout-out to Dr. Toussaint. One of the things I loved about him was the fact that whenever he would get up and teach, he didn't just say, okay, we're going to start you know, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and then he would move on as if every little piece of a book was its own standalone message. One of the things that I loved is that he was a master of synthesis. He could, whenever we would begin and he would teach a book, he would remind us of the flow of the whole, as well as simply just talking about this little bitty section. Each book of the Bible is not a group of devotionals that are standalone that you could just pick out and make uh, standalone messages, but they all fit together. So we're going to honor that tradition, and I think it's such great teaching to do that, to to bring it all together each time and not simply say, okay, we're going to start in this verse and forget everything that Mark has written beforehand. Remember what Mark has done the first 13 verses. If you were here last week, you'll remember... um, It talks about the beginning or the initial outset of Jesus' ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of of Jesus Christ, and the ministry of John the Baptist appearing and preparing the way, getting ready for the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus is baptized. It talks about his, his preparation with temptation, his identification of us as sinners, And so the preparation is laid, the ground is set now for Jesus to step on the stage and begin 
to preach. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 14. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel. When we hear the gospel, we think of, you know, you're a sinner, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you believe in Jesus Christ, and you'll go to heaven. Well, that's what we call the gospel. That is the good news, and is the sense of particularly the epistles. But the good news, remember the gospel means good news. So if we translate it that way, let's look at verse 15 again, or verse 14 and 15. Preaching the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. The gospel in this context is not, you're a sinner, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you need to believe. The gospel, the good news is, the kingdom's coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom, every listening Jew would understand, is that promised kingdom of God on earth that one from David's line would reign on David's throne in Jerusalem over the whole world. This is what the Old Testament promised, that the kingdom would be. That the return from exile would not just, just be a return from to the land, but it would be a return to the Lord. John the Baptist came preparing the people for that purpose. And now Jesus steps on the scene and says, it's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's almost here. Believe in this good news. Repent and believe. Repent. Remember last week we talked about what that means. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind. And really, particularly, it means to change your mindset. It's not just that you change your actions, but you change what causes those actions. Uh, You repent because you've decided, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not simply changing your actions, but it's changing your mindset from self to Christ. John the Baptist said, I am not fit to untie his sandals. Jesus is mightier than anyone else. So Jesus steps on the scene, and as John is taken into custody, Jesus takes up the baton and keeps going with the exact same message. The message that Jesus preached is the message that John has been preaching. Repent. It's a message of repentance and preparation for the kingdom of God. A kingdom has a king. A king has authority. And authority has one of two responses, either submission or rebellion. And you either recognize the authority of the king and submit, or you refuse and you rebel. And Mark shows us the very first of these responses in verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Let me show you a few slides here that will give you a little bit of context. 
This is this is a guy who is casting a net into the Sea of Galilee, and this is the kind of a net that you would cast, like from a standing position. There were different types of nets, and it's interesting. You look through the New Testament; different words, diff, uh, different words translated "net" actually mean different types of net. But here is a net that is cast into the water. Here's another image of some fishermen on the shore mending their nets. The text says that James and John were actually in the boat mending their nets. But you get this sense that, uh, kind of get a picture of what it was like to be there on the shore as Jesus walks up and says, follow me. You know, this paragraph sort of comes off a bit strange if the gospel of Mark is all we have. We're tempted to judge Simon and Andrew, James and John as kind of maybe a little dim-witted. I mean, here this guy walks up while you're working and says, hey, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They just drop everything and go. What do you think James and John's father thought of that? Hey, guys, what are you doing? Get back to work. But Jesus wasn't a stranger. Of course, you look at the other Gospels, we know, particularly the Gospel of John. Uh, Andrew, John the Baptist told Andrew, Andrew about Jesus. Andrew went and told Simon Peter about Jesus. So what we have here in Mark is very select incidents that Mark chose to highlight. In fact, of course, looking at all the verses that we looked at last week, Mark leaves out the Christmas story that Matthew and Luke go into great detail on. And Mark just gives us the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and boom, we're right into his ministry. So Mark's purpose in writing is different from the other Gospels. It's very action-oriented. It's very servant-oriented. And so when Jesus shows up and says, follow me, he's talking and inviting these men who already are very well aware of who he is. Uh, Even John the Baptist, we're told here, has prepared the way. So even Mark gives that for us. So he isn't he isn't uh, the disciples aren't dim-witted they're very much following Jesus from a perspective of awareness of who he is. But notice again what he tells them. He says there in verse 17, "Follow me." This is something we do or this is something they did. "Follow me." And now here's what he will do. "You follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus makes us to become fishers of men, and it's becoming fishers of men. It's a process. He didn't snap his fingers, and now all of a sudden they are exactly what he, uh, they want him to, he wants them to be. It's a process. You follow me, and I will make you fish, become fishers of men. You know, Very few of us, when we say yes to a big commitment, know what we're saying yes to. Think about when you got married. You know, the husband is standing up there saying, I do, but thinking, but not really thinking about everything he's vowing before God, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, yeah, but how bad can it get? Better for worse, in sickness and in health, riches or not riches or poor. Um, but the, this is what we vow. And 
Very few of us, I think, with any big venture before us know exactly what we're getting into, whether it's marriage, whether it's college, whether it's a particular job, whether it's a particular neighborhood, anything that is a big commitment and a big major move, we don't realize it. And God keeps secrets. He does that on purpose. Because if he told us everything about our futures, we would never follow him. So follow me. And here's everything that's going to happen. All this, this bad thing's going to happen. This bad thing's going to happen. And I'm just going to let you know what it's going to take to, for me to make you to become fishers of men. For you to become everything I want you to be, it's going to be a process. I'll just tell you it's a process, but I won't tell you the details. Follow me. Well, James and John and Peter and Andrew knew about the kingdom of God. They were very well aware. They wanted that kingdom. The kingdom of God, from a Jewish perspective, is when the Messiah would come and, from their perspective, squash Rome and set up God's kingdom on earth. And so for Jesus, the one they understood to be the Messiah, to show up and say, I'm selecting you four guys to be on my team. James... James and John's brother Zebedee, uh, father Zebedee say, would, would then be saying, guys, go. I want you to go and follow this guy because his kingdom is the kingdom that we want. But notice Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll make you hot shots in the kingdom of God. That's what they, that's what they heard. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So we're going to see throughout the the book of Mark as Jesus is in process of shaping these people, these men, to become what he wants them to be, that it totally sidesteps all of their expectations of what they want Jesus to do for them. We're going to see several principles in this text today, and the first one is this. In following Jesus... He gives purpose to my life. And I'm saying these personally so that if you're writing it down, it works for you. Purpose in my life, in your life. In following Jesus, he gives purpose to my life. Those who Jesus calls to follow, in the next chapter we're going to see they're called disciples. The word disciple is from the Greek word mathetes. We get our word mathematics from it. It means a student, a learner an apprentice, one who follows along and learns in the steps of his master. It doesn't mean that you simply are in a classroom for three and a half years doing book learning, a course on discipleship, but you are also walking with Jesus and learning it as you're you're learning it by doing it, not just by listening. It's not a program of self-development. It's a program of service. It's a program of service. Think about that in relation to your life. When, when you think about discipleship for you personally, do you define that simply as going to Bible studies, going to church, <clears throat> reading your books, reading Bibles, getting fed, eating, 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 input, input? Or does it also include output? Jesus didn't say, follow me and I will make you really smart. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of others. It's it's me pouring into you so that you can pour into the lives of other people. 
That is the purpose of growing as a disciple, making disciples. I remember in seminary, Dr. Toussaint gave us what he called, uh, uh, we had contract grading. You know what that means? That means you basically make a contract with the professor what grade you want. And so for an A, you had to do this much work. For a B, you do a little less. For a C, you do a little less. And the, the D or F wasn't even an option. You couldn't contract for a D or an F. But A, B, or C, you had options. And, you know, a lot of times that was really good for guys who were working full time who, you know, C is really the best they could do. And so it sort of gave them an honorable way to get a C. Say, here's all you got to do to to pass the class and get a C. Well, that works really well for an academic setting, but it's really lousy when you think about it in the Christian life. A lot of times we'll approach Jesus on a contract grading basis. You say, I'm not really an A student, Jesus, you know, like Taylor or Rex, but I'm going to contract for a B in this Christian life. I I'm really busy, so Lord, I'm on a contract for a C. What do I have to do to get a C in discipleship? Jesus doesn't give any option but an A. Remember Paul, when Paul said in a race there's only one winner, one winner, race to to win. Boy, say that ten times fast. (laughs) There's only one winner, so run to win. And it's not that it doesn't mean it's a competition. It means it's a passion. In this Christian life, run to win. You may stumble, get back up. You may get tired, that's okay. You may need to stop and get some refreshment. Gulp it down and keep going. Run to win. The tape is at the end of life. Run to win. It's a passion. It's not a competition. And as we go through this book, we're going to see that the disciples are in competition. They view discipleship as a competition. Who is, who is deemed to be the greatest? Jesus says that is not discipleship. Who is a servant? That is the one who is my disciple. And we often view these disciples and ridicule them as being dense. And yet think about it. Look at all that they gave up to follow Christ. They left their jobs. They left, in some sense, their families. They left everything familiar to follow Christ. Now, their motives were definitely mixed, but the Lord works that out. You know what? Ours are too. Our motives for the Christian life are very mixed. Just think about the prayers that you've said lately. How many of those prayers are simply for the glory of God? for the betterment of others, as opposed to, God, help me feel better. Simply help me feel better emotionally. The issue Jesus gives is an issue of priority. Who's on first? Well, we're about to see in Jesus' life, he models for his men what these priorities look like. Verse 21. Then they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority 
and not as the scribes. They went to Capernaum. If you look, if you go to Israel today, you can see this place right here by the Sea of Galilee. We know where Capernaum is. Archaeologically, there's really no doubt. This is it. And if you look at this picture, I've got a couple of spots circled on here, or we've got one, one place circled. What's circled is Peter's house. And archaeologically, again, that's, it's, you know, we're as certain as we can be that that was his house because it was venerated above all the other houses. There was, there was a, a, a church and then another church built over that same spot. And if you tear the layers down of all the churches, there's just this humble house that's at the bottom. So of all the houses in Capernaum, there's only one that shines from the Gospels, and it was Peter's house. And also right behind Peter's house, you see that little arrow pointing to this white blob on the screen. That is the synagogue, the synagogue that's there. This is a better picture of the synagogue. This is actually a synagogue from the 4th century, but it is on the foundation of the synagogue from the 1st century. See the black foundation that it's sitting on, the basalt rock? That is the foundation of the synagogue from the time of Christ. So here's the point. The synagogue that you go and see when you go there today, or that you're looking at right here in this picture, is from the 4th century, but it's sitting on top of the one from the 1st century. In other words, this is the same airspace, the very same place where the events that we're about to read took place. So I'll leave that slide up, and you can just imagine these events happening there. And we'll continue, verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Jesus is teaching, and his teaching is interrupted by this demon-possessed person. And it refers to one demon, but when the demon speaks, notice it says, have you come to destroy us? So there's some kind of odd unity and plurality there that maybe we've got one demon speaking for more than one that are possessing this poor man. And interesting, they know their ultimate destiny, and they know who will do it. They shout to Jesus, first of all, his earthly name, Jesus of Nazareth, and then they give an insight that nobody up to that time in in that context understood except these demons. You are the Holy One of God. And this is too much too soon information, and Jesus tells him to be quiet. He doesn't want the testimony of demons. He's not called demons to be witnesses. Notice every time a demon talks about Jesus' deity, Jesus hushes them up. That's not their place to give testimony to humanity. He doesn't want demons to be the ones that preach, but he gives, strangely enough, us that privilege. Well, they're right, but Jesus doesn't want the testimony of demons. Notice Jesus' response, uh, the people's response to what Jesus did. Verse 27, they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. What is it? What news spread? Is it the news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? No, it's the news that a new teaching with authority commands unclean spirits and they obey. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, let's pause there a second. Verse 29, now I know Mark uses the word immediately a lot. I mean, it's like his favorite word, immediately this, immediately that, immediately this. But notice here it says, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew. You go to, you go to Capernaum today and you see that is possible. Coming out of the synagogue, the house of Peter is just right there. It's just right there. And so you can imagine this, this throng. And verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So once again, he, he silences the demons. Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. It says the fever left her. That word left is a mild translation. The Greek literally says that uh, it, it forsook her. The fever forsook her. Isn't that a great term, just of the parting of that fever? And after the sun had set, word gets out that not only do we have this divine exorcist who drives out demons with just his words, but we also have one who has healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of this fever. And so... Everybody gathers at Simon's door. Everybody gathers at Simon's door. Again, look look at the picture. If, if you get out of the synagogue and you go just a few steps farther, you get to this place that looks like you know a spaceship has landed there at Capernaum. This is a church that's been built over the ruins of Peter's house. And if you go underneath it, you can see they've excavated the ruins that are there. So this is, this is the foundation of a church, an octagonal church. And then that center section, if you look there, represents the remains of a first century home. And that's the home of Peter. Uh, there's no other, no other home that it could be, according to the Gospels. So imagine all of Capernaum gathered at the door of this house. And everybody's there, and everybody is looking for Jesus for this purpose of healing. And, and Jesus, in his mercy, we're told, heals many. Notice verse 32, it says they're bringing all who were ill. But verse 34, it says he healed many who were ill. Not all, many. And then it says he cast out many demons. Not all, many. Why? Why not all, Jesus? Isn't it your will that all be healed? Well, the next, the next verses here give us some insight into why that happened. But let me just say, I don't, I don't know if you've ever 
been involved in ministry, but you've certainly had the need of a ministry. And I've been in ministry for a long time. Well, I think it's a long time, almost 30 years. Feels like a long time. Feels like a long time. But most of the time I've noticed people, when they, when they want help from a ministry, it's help for physical things. I need help with my rent. I need, I need help. Uh, I, I need even something as practical as uh, I need a pastor to marry us. It's something physical. It's something practical. Very rarely is it something spiritual. In fact, I would say probably 90% of the needs that a church is approached to meet are physical needs. And here we have Jesus' ministry at the very beginning. He faces that same challenge. I need help physically with these illnesses or with these demons. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God, but people are saying, I need physical help. I remember reading someplace that Steve McQueen trusted Jesus Christ just before he died in 1980. You know, he was only 50 when he died. About 10 years prior to that time, so I guess about 1970, he was asked what he thought about God. And he said something to the effect of, well, as long as I'm number one, God is number one. Steve McQueen. It's a simple fact of life that we tend to love God for what he gives us. I don't know what it was that caused McQueen to come to know Christ there at the end of his life, but better late than never. Notice that they brought Jesus all, but he only healed many. Why is that? Why is that? Look at verse 35, and we see Jesus determining his priorities at the beginning of his ministry. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So here you've got a great model. Jesus is our great model for how to determine your priorities. And here's the second principle. Time with the Lord refocuses my priorities on what is most important. Time with the Lord refocuses my priorities on what is most important. I'm trying to filter here as that merciless clock strikes 12. Tell you what, I guess, uh, I guess we're going to just stop and pick up here the next time we get in the, into the text together. But rather than just send you away, um, I hope, think about this last principle, time with the Lord refocuses. Jesus had the opportunity here to do a lot of good things, didn't he? A lot of good things. Is it good to drive out demons? Absolutely. Is it good to heal diseases? Absolutely. And yet Jesus left many good things undone so that he could do what was most important to do, and that was to preach the kingdom of God. Think about that in your life for a second. 
You've got a lot of great things that you could do. Good things, worthy things, things that would win awards. And yet, Jesus may have called you to something far more basic. How are you going to determine what that is? How are you going to get to the place where you realize, I need to not do all these good things, and I need to do this good thing instead? Time alone with the Father. That's how Jesus did it. He got away while it was still dark, went out to a place all by himself, and was praying there. You have to have that daily time, that regular time with the Father, if you are ever to hope to understand what your priorities in your life are to be. Otherwise, you're just scrambling from one rabbit hole to the next, one busy activity, good activity, to the next. And you get to the end of your life and you think, good grief, Lord, I did a lot of great things, but maybe I missed exactly what it was that you want to do. God still has you breathing for a reason, and that's to do what he wants you to do. Have you determined, though, what that first base is? All right, well, let's stop and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this great example from the life of Jesus. His ministry barely gets going, and he already shows us what his priorities are. The opportunities for him to do great works were all over the place, and yet he chose to do the simple task of preaching and letting the miracles support the message rather than the other way around. So, Father, as we get alone with you each day, As we open the word and listen to you speak to us, give us ears to hear and to filter all the good opportunities that we have to do through the grid of priorities and help us to make the good choice that you'd have us make. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.